Okay, let's pray together as we get started. Father, we thank you that we can come uh, for Sunday school today and learn more about your word. We pray that you would help us to uh, learn from and apply all of the things from our passage that we can know. And we ask that you would help us to be humble um, and realize our need for your help with regard to passages that we don't uh, fully or at all understand. Thank you for your goodness to us in letting us uh, gather for this purpose. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I was saying earlier that if you're tired of talking about the return of Christ, um, this Sunday should be the last Sunday that that's our theme. Um, so um, you'll get to talk about other topics starting next Sunday. And we only have one or two Sundays left, so we're almost done. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to do the first 12 verses today. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what, it is, what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he, now, he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So all of that is crystal clear. I don't know that we even need to spend any time on it, so perhaps we should move to the next section. Right? Um, actually, it's not. Uh, it, it's a difficult passage. Um, this deals with, um, I think, and most commentators would say, that this deals with the person uh, who is known uh, as the Antichrist. And over history, there have been lots of theories as to who the Antichrist is. Going all the way back to the early years of the church, there were some, while Nero was living, there were some that thought that the emperor Nero was the Antichrist. And then after he died, there were some that thought Nero was still Antichrist and that he was going to come back to life. Um, during the period of the Reformation, um, it was common, um, commonly believed among Protestants that... Um, the Pope or the papacy was Antichrist, and so that reference appears in our own confession of faith, or if you have a King James Version of the Bible, if you look in the preface to the King James Version, you'll find um, a reference to the um, 
to the uh, to the Pope um, as the man of sin or as the Antichrist. So um, that has been one of the theories over the years. Um, in more modern times, um, some have thought that Hitler was the Antichrist. Uh, somebody thought that um, John F. Kennedy was the Antichrist because of the wound to the head and a reference to a passage in Revelation 13 and just to make it bipartisan some people thought that Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist because Ronald Wilson Reagan all three of his names um, have six letters in them so that was the, uh, the evidence <coughs> that, uh, of that um, there is another theory that's not as widely known but if you, you know the phone directories, how they work, you know, you call in, if you know the name of the person that you want, punch in the first three letters of their last name. The letters M-O-N are 666 on your dial pad. So um, right here in the church in front of you, it could be happening. But um, oh, about Gorbachev. Uh, yeah, because of the thing on his forehead. Mark on, mark on his head. Forehead, yeah. Mark of the beast. Wow. Well, and the Pope one keeps coming around. What's that? Yeah, that, that is an ongoing uh, idea that folks have. So lots of theories. Yeah, whatever religious leader or whatever politician you don't like, that who get that who uh, who that's the person whose name gets thrown up as uh, as a possibility. So um, we'll look at this today, and I don't uh, claim that we will identify the Antichrist. I think that's a fool's errand uh, that none of us uh, should attempt to do. But nonetheless, we will see some characteristics of this uh, person, if in fact it is a person. And, um, and so there, there's a lot that we can gain from this passage of Scripture. Now, when we look at the passage, we should acknowledge that this is a, probably the most difficult text in the Thessalonian epistles. And it's difficult for a, a number of reasons, not the least of which is that we're essentially listening to one side of a conversation. You notice in verse 5, this is my, I think, my least favorite verse in all the Bible. And I know the Holy Spirit inspired scripture, and, and, and so I'm not showing any disrespect for any of that. But verse 5 says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And I, every time I read that, I think, oh my goodness, why didn't he just tell us what he had told them? Because that would illuminate this conversation. Because all of us have had the experience of being in the room with somebody that was on the phone. And we hear what the person that is in the room with us is saying, but we don't hear the other side. And so we think we know what they're talking about, but then they get off the phone, they explain the conversation, and it turns out to be completely different from what we thought we, we had heard. All of us have had that experience and there's the danger that we can have that <clears throat> same kind of experience reading this passage in uh, 2 Thessalonians. Paul is dealing with um, folks on an issue that he had already taught them a great deal about. And so we don't have all of that context. And so that's one of our challenges in understanding the passage. We're only hearing one side of the conversation. Another reason that this is a difficult passage is that Paul's language here is animated. Um, if we could read it in the Greek this morning, we would find that Paul does not um, use grammatically correct sentences here. Uh, as frequently happens in Paul's writings, um, 
sometimes he just gets excited and words just start, start flowing. Um, and, and that's true of this passage. Um, all of us who believe in biblical inerrancy, and I hope that we all do, should never imagine that biblical inerrancy implies perfect grammatical instructions. That's not the case. And it wasn't as, as brilliant of, of a, a doctrinal writer as, as Paul was. He didn't attempt to construct his language in that way. And, and so um, his language here is animated. He's concerned about the Thessalonians. He's excited about uh, the implications of his subject. And so the words just sort of flow, which makes it hard to understand at times. Another reason that this is a difficult passage is that Paul uses some terminology here that is open to multiple um, translations, and so it, it's hard to know at points what he's talking about. One example of that is in verse 7, where he says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do, do so until he is out of the way. That word translated restrains, that's one of the possible translations, but there are others, um, one of them being, for example, um, holds sway, he who now holds, holds sway, which leads in a very different direction as far as what that text means. And so when some of the terms that are used are open to very different uh, translations, it makes interpreting the passage difficult. And then finally, a difficulty with this text and I'm starting out by talking about all the things that make this hard. I'm, I'm building my excuses um, before we get into the rest. But the other thing that, that makes this passage difficult is that on a subject such as the Antichrist, uh, many, many of us bring assumptions to the text. All of us bring some assumptions to the text that may be helpful or not helpful um, in terms of understanding the passage itself. So sometimes we will uh, read things into it um, that may or may not uh, actually be there. So all of those things make this a tough passage of scripture and anybody that you know wants to teach it in a way that suggests you know I've got all this down, it's all very simple, um, probably you should switch to a different channel on the TV because they they probably don't know nearly as much as they think they do. So. Um, we, we ought to acknowledge it when, when there is a tough passage of Scripture in front of us. So Paul states the problem that they're experiencing in verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or alert, a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And so there were some in the church that were saying that the, the day of Christ's return has already happened. Um, there were uh, some preterists in the church. No, I didn't say that. If you don't know what a preterist is, don't worry, nobody else does either. Um, but anyway, um, the, there were some folks there that um, I got at least one smile out of that. But anyway... Um, there were uh, folks in the congregation that said that were saying that the Lord, uh, the day of the Lord, had already arrived, and this was causing some deep concern within the church. Um, the word for shaken that he uses there actually has the idea of a ship out on the sea. 
in a tumultuous storm. And so there were people that were really um, uh, being deeply shaken by these events. Now, there, there's something that, that's important that we see here, and, and this just reiterates what we've seen earlier, that bad doctrine harms people, and good doctrine will help people. So if you look back at chapter 4 and verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So when they were, when they were um, being shaken up by bad doctrine, they were grieving like hopeless people. And then at the end of that passage, therefore, in verse 19 of chapter 4, verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. So bad doctrine led to grieving hopelessly, and good doctrine led to encouragement. And so in chapter 5, bad doctrine lead, leads to being shaken in mind, and at the conclusion of this passage, uh, following where we read in verse 13, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you. And so being shaken when they are uh, dealing with, when they are um, uh, consumed with bad doctrine is turned to giving thanks when they understand good doctrine. And so we see uh, the importance of knowing what we believe and why we believe it. it um, uh, doctrine that is um, that is wrong um, leads us uh, to being shaken and grieving and those sorts of things. Whereas there's thanksgiving and encouragement when our understanding is corrected. But they they had this idea that the Lord had already come, or that the day of the Lord had already arrived. And Paul corrects them in verse three by saying this could not have happened. Because there are two preliminary things that have to happen first prior to the day of the Lord. So look at verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. And so the day of the Lord could not have come because two other things have not happened. We have not seen the... Um, the rebellion that has, will come, and we have not seen the man of lawlessness. Now, the word there translated rebellion uh, sounds pretty much just like our English word apostasy. And so the idea of rebellion there is probably uh, one of an apostasy, and given what follows with regard to the, uh, this person setting himself up in the temple, probably what uh, Paul has in mind is and we'll talk more about this, is an apostasy within the church itself. And so, uh, not the entire church, but there will be a great movement of people within the visible church, of people that forsake Christ and that follow uh, this man of lawlessness instead. And so there will be some sort of apostasy that afflicts the church um, in the last time. Yeah. What's that? If you don't believe in an actual set millennium, do you also not believe in an actual set antichrist? No. Um, so, um, many amillennialists uh -huh. do believe. And well, let's let's back up and talk about the difference of opinion on this. So there is there is a view 
that the Antichrist is nothing more than a principle that exists throughout the age. Um, and there is certainly a principle of Antichrist that Paul mentions here in this text. Uh, John mentions it in 1 John 4.13 that there are many Antichrists. Um, and so, um, so certainly I think that we see in the Bible that there is this principle of Antichrist. So the question is, are all of the um, references to Antichrist explained by the idea of a principle for, for all time, or is there an actual person? Now there are people, there are people that say, well, there's the principle and nothing else. At the other end of the spectrum, there are people that say, well, there's the person and not really a principle. So you have the extremes at both ends. My own view is that, um, that there is this principle throughout the age, but that at the end of time, before the return of Christ, there will be a human being, an individual, that embodies that principle of Antichrist. So um, since I'm one of those people that doesn't believe in a uh, literal millennium, but I also believe that there is an individual, it is possible to hold both. Did that answer your question? Okay. Others? Um, so the, there will be an apostasy is, is what is suggested here. And then second, this man of sin or a man of lawlessness will be revealed. Now you see, depending on your translation, you may see either of those terms. Um, there's really not much difference in the meaning of whether he's the man of sin or the man of lawlessness. They more or less mean the same thing. The reason that you see different um, terms in your different translations is that in the old uh, manuscripts, the old uh, manuscripts that we have of Second Thessalonians, um, you see both words appear. Um, so you see in some the word for sin, you see in some the word for lawlessness. I think most Greek scholars say that lawlessness is the most likely uh, given, on, given the manuscripts that we have, but it's one of those things that really doesn't make that much difference in how we understand the text. Um, the thing that we should note is that he is referred to as the man of lawlessness and the son of destruction, or sometimes translated the son of perdition. Um, both of these phrases really are, um, even though they're written in Greek, they are Hebraisms, they are um, they reflect a, a Hebrew thought in that uh, when he says a man of lawlessness, he's saying a person who is characterized. He, uh, a characteristic of who he is is that he's lawless or that he's uh, a man uh, characterized by sin. And when it says um, that he's the son of destruction, the idea there is that... Um, that a chief characteristic of who he is is where he's headed. He's headed toward destruction. And so um, th this is a, a, way of a way of phrasing that was common um, with the Jews, um, in, in particularly in the Hebrew language, but Paul here is carrying it over into his Greek. Um, so let's look at some characteristics of this person who is being talking, talked about. And I think that as we walk through these, that you'll see the reason that um, it's most likely that Paul here is talking about an individual. It doesn't seem to, these don't seem to be um, 
um, characteristics of a principle of, of, of an ongoing principle, but rather of an individual. So let's look um, real quickly at these. First of all, um, as we pointed out in, in the latter part of verse 3, he's characterized by lawlessness and certain doom. And so he's referred to as the man of lawlessness and the son of destruction. In verse 4, he opposes all religion except that which worships himself. Uh, so in the first part of verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now when we talk about applying this to somebody in the future who is the Antichrist, some people say, well, isn't that a little bit hard to believe in our time? That um, I, we know that the ancient Roman, that the Romans back then worshipped their em emperors, but is it realistic to believe that in the 21st century that people are going to worship um, a leader uh, like is described? And I, I would only point to the fact that it has happened fairly recently. If you look at the kind of devotion that was offered uh, in the Soviet Union to Vladimir Lenin, um, both before and after his death, or in uh, China to Mao Zedong, um, then you see a kind of religious devotion that has been um, applied to human beings that were leaders. The other thing that I think that we can say about this and that probably should concern us is that throughout the West, the increasing uh, reliance of people, and I, I would say that this is both on the left and the right, the increasing reliance that people have on the state as the great hope that will solve all of these vast problems, some of which seem to be existential, uh, would lead to, um, uh, seems to lead toward almost a messianic hope with regard to um, political leadership. And so I think that we actually are setting ourselves up uh, for that sort of thing and sometimes see it. Absolutely. And so this person seems to be one that, um, that combines both. That somebody that has tremendous power uh, politically, but also has a leadership role within the church itself. Um, so let's look at that. Um, in, in the latter part of verse 4 that we just read, this person actually um, sets himself up as a leader in a religious uh, institution. And I've been saying the church, and I'll, I'll try to defend that momentarily. Um, so in the latter parts of verse, verse 4, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now that part of this passage is um, heavily debated. And as you know, there are some people that look for, some, for a rebuilt uh, temple in the future and think that the Antichrist um, will set himself up as a god in a Jewish temple um, in, uh, rebuilt in Jerusalem. Um, my own understanding of this is that in all likelihood, Paul is speaking of 
a temple here, um, meaning uh, the church. The temple had ceased to be a temple um, when its function was fulfilled by the death of Christ. And so you really don't find the Apostle Paul in any of, any of his writings uh, referring to the temple that still stood in Jerusalem as the temple of God. But you find repeated references in the writings of Paul to the church as a building inhabited by the Spirit, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, um, in, in which all of us have been built as stones. And so um, the repeated references of the Apostle Paul are to the church as the temple of God. And so if that is being consistently applied here, then Paul is saying that this is an apostasy that will occur um, in the church. There, there is another practical consideration here for those that would make a Jewish temple rebuilt in the last days um, as uh, the place that the Antichrist will inhabit. And that is this. This is also being described as a falling away. A falling away from what? A falling away from faith in Christ. Well, you can have a falling away within the church because people within the church are turning away from Christ, right? But if you're talking about a Jewish temple where they've never believed in Christ, how can there be a falling away? They already don't believe. And so um, it seems um, for multiple reasons that Paul has in mind here a vast apostasy um, within the church and this Antichrist actually taking a place of leadership um, within the church. So that seems to be what Paul um, has in mind. I've done a lot of talking. Does anybody want to... Uh, speak up to agree, disagree, ask questions, make snipe marks, any and all of the above. <laughs> I shouldn't even invite that. See, see last course notes uh, on the temple. Yes. Thank you, Chuck. Yeah, if you go back to what we talked about last spring, we, we covered this as well. Well, you know, since Paul will be raptured, and you know, Israel <laughs> will be brought in, you got to remember those things. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, there's no indication that, um, that the church will not be here. And, and by the way, there is a reason that Paul, in, in while talking about the vast power of this person, <clears throat> There is a reason that Paul also emphasizes here, uh, number one, that not everybody will be, um, will be deceived. Um, you know, he talks about the fact that the ones that um, are deceived are the ones that are perishing. Um, and then in um, verse 13, he says, we give thanks to God that God has chosen you as first first to be saved. And so not everyone is going to be deceived. And then furthermore, this person is going to be destroyed easily. It's just by the breath of his mouth that Christ will destroy uh, this enemy. And so this is, not some, this is somebody that we should take seriously, but it's not somebody that we should fear can tear us away from our 
uh, faith in Christ if we are in fact one of uh, Christ's chosen ones. Um, looking at some other characteristics of this person, verses 6 and 7, his revelation is restrained for the present time. Uh, verse 6, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. There are lots of theories as to what these verses mean. And, and to, just to emphasize how varied the interpretations are, there are some that say that the one that restrains is the Holy Spirit. There are some that say that the one that restrains is Satan. Now that's about, that's about as far apart as you can get. Um, so there are lots of interpretations. As I mentioned earlier, one of the difficulties of this passage is that, um, that even some of the terminology here um, is open to multiple translations. And so that's a very difficult text. Have you ever had a situation where you really had your har a hard time getting your um, um, arms around the subject and you weren't sure what you thought about it? And so um, you'd hear from one person and say, that makes great sense. I think that's right. And then you'd hear from another person. You'd say, oh, that makes great sense. I think they're right. And then you hear from a third person. You say, oh, that's, that's just perfect sense. I think they're right. So whoever the last person you, you was you talked to, that's who you agreed with. Um, I, I sort of have felt this way as I've read multiple commentaries on verses 6 and 7 here. But ultimately, I decided that I agreed with uh, St. Augustine, who looked at this text and said, I don't know. <laughs> so um, so I, I've really struggled over this. There, are, As I say, there are lots of um, interpretations. And as to what Paul has in mind here with, um, um, with the one that restrains so that the... Uh, Man of lawlessness has not been, been revealed yet. Um, tell Pastor Joe and, and the session that your teacher is dropping the ball here, but I don't know. And that's the best I can do. But we do know that in some sense that his, uh, that his um, revelation is restrained for the present time. Um, on the other hand, though, um, while this is an individual that will be um, revealed in the future prior to the return of Christ, the same spirit um, that um, it characterizes him is already present. Uh, we see this in other passages of Scripture we mentioned earlier, that 1 John 4, uh, 3 says that... Um, that, uh, that um, Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus is not, uh, confess Jesus is not from God, and this is the spirit of the Antichrist which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. And so um, this is a, um, this is a uh, spirit uh, that is among us in all times. Um, other characteristics in verse 8, his destruction will be swift and certain. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. And so as, as impressive as he seems on the world stage, Christ will very quickly bring him to nothing 
And then finally in verse 9, uh, this person who is the Antichrist is empowered by Satan and delivers false signs and wonders to deceive many. In verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Now there are other passages in the Bible that seem to be in the background that were written prior to Second uh, Thessalonians that seem to be in the background of what Paul is writing here. Um, certainly um, there are passages about an apostasy um, in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 where um, Jesus, uh, if you want to turn back there, Matthew 24 and starting with verse 10. Matthew 24 and verse 10. Um, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And the end will come. And by the way, verse 14 is another interpretation of what is restraining the appearing of Antichrist, that the gospel had not yet been preached to all the world. And so um, that was a restraining factor. But um, this falling away, this age of this period of lawlessness um, seems to be in the background of Paul, what Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 2. The other thing that's in the background is the prophecies of the book of Daniel which Jesus also makes reference to um, in the Olivet Discourse. So in Daniel, Daniel writing 500 years before the uh, return of Christ, um, references, um, I mean before the first coming of Christ, um, Daniel issues prophecies of an individual who is going to appear in the second century, Antiochus Epiphanes. And we see this in Daniel chapter 8 and then with more, um, more uh, specificity in Daniel chapter 11. Antiochus was the most despised, I think you would say, person in all of the history of the Jewish people prior to Adolf Hitler. And so Antiochus attempted to destroy the, the Jewish people. He attempted to have a pig slaughtered in the temple. And, um, and that uh, set off the Maccabean uh, revolt that is written about in apocryphal literature. Um, Antiochus was uh, an absolutely hated individual. He had, he had arisen after the death of Alexander the Great and the uh, division of Alexander's empire into four parts. And Antiochus had responsibility over um, the area that included Jerusalem and he was just a, an absolutely hated um, individual, and for good reason. Like I say, probably uh, prior to Adolf Hitler um, in the last century, the most uh, despised individual in all of Jewish history. And Antiochus, as written about in Daniel and as mentioned by Jesus, and is perhaps in the background of Second Thessalonians 2, is... Um, 
he's he's kind of in the background of what this antichrist will be like, what this individual will be um, at the end of the age. And so Daniel 8, 9, and 11 um, seem to be in mind um, with Paul as he's writing this. Um, it should be noted um, that this passage does teach that there will be an apostasy in the church. The Antichrist will fool people in the church. That does not mean that all of the church will be fooled. Now, there's a sense in which um, this should not surprise us because we have seen throughout um, Christian history, we have seen periods where the church seemed to be largely in danger of losing the gospel of losing its faithfulness to Christ, of losing um, the message that was most central to what Christianity is. And even if you just look in the last 500 years of the history of the church, the Protestant Reformation did not say that the church had completely apostatized, but the church by and large had fallen in danger of, and they were losing the gospel of justification by faith alone, uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That message was in danger of being lost, and so the church needed to be reformed. Then even among the Protestant churches over the last 500 years, we've seen controversies where um, there have been dangers of turning away from that message by Faith alone in Christ is the message of salvation. There have been dangers of forsaking uh, the scripture as uh, authoritative in matters of faith and practice. There have been dangers uh, posed by uh, those would, that would alter the mission of the church to being something that um, involves social justice more than it involves the proclamation of the gospel. And so we've seen all of these kinds of things that would turn us away from the centrality of Christ and the cross and turn it to something else. Well, if that can happen over and over again, then certainly the church, or at least vast portions of it, um, can apostatize. Those kinds of things open the door to an even worse um, apostasy. Um, the other thing that can be said about this is that in this, even though Paul does not address uh, the doctrine of the church here, in passages like this we see teaching about the visible versus the invisible church. The invisible church is the one that only God sees. It's made up of the truly elect, of those that truly have faith in Christ. The visible church, the one that we can see, is made up of the elect, of those that have faith in Christ, but also of those that are part of our communion, of, the, of their, their members of churches, that, uh, but they have never believed in Christ. Um, here we find uh, that the church, uh, that vast portions of the church in this period of time will apostatize but the elect will not apostatize. The Antichrist, Satan, has no ability to take the faith away from those who are God's elect. And so um, you see this distinction here. 
a visible versus invisible church, I think, in this passage. But it ties back to where's your salvation from? Is it something you did or something that was handed to you? And so, I mean, there's a whole other lesson there, too. <laughs> Absolutely. So important. And, and how is it that you know that you're one of God's elect? If you can, you pull up your shirt tail and say, "Oh, yep, I'm stamped. I, I'm alive." <coughs> no, um, that's from a line by Spurgeon, where you know Spurgeon. Somebody said, "Well, if you believe in election, you should only preach the gospel to the elect." And he said, "Well, if I could pull up their shirt tails and know which ones are and which ones aren't, then I'd only preach the ones that aren't, but that are." But since it's not stamped on people's backs, I can't do that. So I just preach to everybody. Um, but anyway. How do you know that you're elect? Well, because you believe in Christ, right? Where, where's your hope of salvation? Is it in yourself? Is your hope of salvation that not only did you have faith, but you're faithful? Well, then you might be in trouble. But if your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, then that would sort of indicate that you're one of God's elect because you're trusting in the only thing that can save you as the hope of your salvation. And so the uh, Antichrist can't... Um, can't remove those um, that are God's elect. We've covered a lot of ground. I'm, I'm doing good. <laughs> and I started out by praying that I'd be humble. So. We did find it yesterday really interesting. We're at the National Cemetery and everybody gets to choose an icon, basically, for their, their stone. And Jimmy looked around and said, wow, in some way, all of these the name of Christ. I mean, they've got it, a cross. And so it was interesting to kind of point out that to some of them, that's that's just an icon. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't know. He, he had a, a different sense of it. Than, I don't know, but the visible church, I mean, the difference between the visible and invisible may be scarier than we realize. Yeah, it, it can be that there are, that there are people that are on the roles of churches that are members even among us. All of us, all of us many of us uh, have had the sad experience of uh, raising our children and watching them abandon the faith. So it is, um, it is something that we need to, uh, that, we, that we need, that, that can be uh, concerning. Um, but it, within, the, within the visible church is where there is the hope of the gospel. So even if, when there are those among us that are not believing, we know that, um, that they are in the place where they are uh, receiving the benefits of the preaching of the word and, and the sacraments. Other thoughts? Well, this is the last um, Sunday I intend to teach on this particular subject. Um, I've had two people ask me in recent weeks if I would be interested in doing an entire class on the uh, on eschatology on the second coming of Christ and that sounds really painful <laughs> so um, I don't foresee myself doing that but um, anyway next Sunday we will move toward um, finishing up second Thessalonians and there's still a lot of good stuff to come we get to talk about moochers um, in the next couple of weeks so that's another favorite subject let's pray together Father, we do thank you for your word. We pray that in studying it that we would not find um, idle speculation. Um, and we do pray that while we know that, um, that 
because we are, uh, have faith in you, we know that we cannot be deceived. Um, we do know that these are things that we should take seriously and that, um, and that we should prepare ourselves for um, the apostasy that will come, if it will, in fact, come in our lifetime. Uh, we also pray with regard to the spirit of Antichrist that prevails in every age. We pray that we would, you would help us to uphold your word and oppose it in uh, life and word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.